Turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're looking at various passages in this 1 Johannine epistle, but we'll begin in just a moment in chapter 2 and verse 15 for a sermon entitled, Don't Buy a Ticket on the Titanic. If I ask you to be honest with yourself this morning, will you? In your own heart and in your own mind, just within yourself, would you dare answer this question with candor? How are you different from your unbelieving neighbor? How is your lifestyle different? Your values? Your everyday decisions, how are they different from your unbelieving neighbor? Well, that's easy, Pastor, you might say. I'm here this morning. I faithfully attend church, and my unbelieving neighbor does not. He fishes, golfs, attends sports venues. And while I have organized my life around the day of the resurrection of my Lord, That's significant. I I appreciate it. Nobody appreciates that more than I do. Thank you for making our Lord's Resurrection Day a rhythm of your life. But let me then pose a more pointed question. How does your life, your lifestyle, your value system different from an unbeliever who would happen to go to church every week? Would there still be a fundamental difference between your lifestyle, and his. Now, think carefully. It's, it's a really hard question. And perhaps we are actually afraid of the real answer. Does our checkbook register look the same as our neighbor's? Or could someone tell the difference? For most of us, tithing really does change our lifestyle We could drive better cars, live in bigger houses, and wear garments of style if we spent more on ourselves and less on God's ministry and missions. Are our recreation activities the same? Do we watch the same movies? Do we read the same books? Do we indulge in the same affluent luxuries as our neighbor? How about our conduct with others? Unbelievers, by nature, will always put themselves first. We are born with a me-first attitude. But believers, believers seek that which is best for their brother. Are we like our unbelieving neighbor, putting ourselves first and trampling our co-workers as we ourselves try to mount the hill of success? Do we gossip, gabbing about our neighbor? To anyone who will listen to us and our fanciful fables with one part truth and, well, two-thirds creativity. Is there a believer somewhere that you so admire her lifestyle that just walking the way she lives makes you want to be more like Christ, to, to live more like Christ? How do we treat those around us? Do we treat them like our unbelieving neighbor? Or do we obey our Lord's command that we, as his people, like he did, we must even love our enemies? You understand the question. Unfortunately, you understand the question. 
Are we really different? Are we, or have we so compromised our, our walk? Are we so compromised as a people of God that, well, we don't really even have any points of difference anymore? Well, let's look again at 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is, is passing away. And also its desires. But the one, the one who does the will of God abides forever. The first thing I want you to see this morning is you cannot love both the world and the Father. You cannot love both the world and the Father. The world is at war with the Father. The world is evil and God is good. In the writings of John, whether it's the gospel or his letters, his epistles, the word cosmos, the word for world, signifies the evil, unbelieving realm. Do not love the cosmos. Do not love the unbelieving, dark, evil realm of the cosmos. All, all people who've not called Jesus Lord are in the world. In fact, they are children of the world while we are children of the Father, God. The actions of the world are, are selfish. The pleasures of the world are sinful. The politics of the world are corrupt. The honors are empty. The smiles are fake. And the love of the world is fickle at best. The world is that evil empire dominated by Satan himself, set upon the earth as the antithesis of the kingdom of God. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. 1 John 4, 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Or over to 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's a conflict, a cosmic conflict between God and Satan, good and evil, the world and the kingdom, the spirit and the flesh. Are you this morning in conflict with the evil empire of the world? God is. If you don't find yourself this morning constantly in conflict with the world, then you better check your allegiance. You cannot wholly love the Father without being at odds with the world. 
If there is no conflict within you, then you have compromised. We have compromised so much to the ways of the world that there's no sparks anymore. We should not find ourselves this morning debating our loyalties, the pull between the world and the kingdom. If you're born in the state of Alabama, and some of you were, there are two mutually exclusive choices. You're either an Alabama Crimson Tide fan or an Auburn Tiger fan, and never, ever shall the two meet. From the day a baby is born in the state of Alabama, he is indoctrinated into one team or the other, one kingdom or the other, one side or the other. The rivalry between Alabama and Auburn is so intense that even Alabama fans will shoot and kill each other after Alabama loses. One sports writer wrote a piece entitled, quote, People of Alabama, please stop shooting each other over football, close quote. After two of Alabama's recent losses, fans gathering together for the games had got into arguments that ended with someone being shot and killed. The most recent one was 2021 after a loss to Texas A&M. The sports writer made an announcement. People of Alabama stopped shooting each other over football games. Consider this a public service announcement. Watch football games with your friends, but don't watch football games with friends who bring guns to the party. Put bluntly, he says, when Alabama loses a football game, it doesn't happen much. Chances are pretty good that someone's going to get shot. Some Alabama fan's going to get shot. For example, Adrian Risky was charged with murder after one of the, the Auburn, Alabama Iron Bowls. Now, it's on YouTube, the end. I went and watched it again. It's incredible. There's one second left on the clock. The Iron Bowl is, tired, is tied between Alabama and Auburn. It's a 57-yard field goal, and Saban decides to try to kick the field goal and win the Iron Bowl. Well, it was a, like the third time the kicker had ever kicked, and it was actually a good attempt for 57 yards, but it fell short. And an Auburn player, Chris Davis, he was back in the end zone. He caught it and ran back 100 yards as time expired, and they won the Iron Bowl that year. Wow. Go watch that on YouTube. It's, it's worth watching. Well, what Brisky said, she saw others that were at the game watching, other Alabama fans, and they were not as upset as she was. If they were not as upset as she was, and they were not real Alabama fans, and something had to be done. In fact, she heard one of them say, well, it's not as bad as if the NBA's Miami Heat had actually lost a game. Well, the murderer said to the deceased and her sister, they weren't real Alabama fans because it didn't bother them that Alabama lost. And then she started shooting and killed one of them for not being upset enough over losing the ball game. And they're both Alabama fans, the murderer and the murdered. What if, heaven forbid, I thought about this, what if one child attended the University of Alabama and then, then there was a wayward child in the family that, that might tend to Auburn? What would happen? Has that ever happened? What about the fall when the mom's there, there's the iron bowl and one kid's Alabama, it's an Alabama family and then there's this kid at Auburn and well, you see, this, this is not a one-day rivalry. This is 365 days a year. This is hate and obsession. Sports Illustrated calls it the number one rivalry in all of sports. 
fact, it all started in 1893. And it was nasty. The nastiness was so bad that in 1907, they had to call the, the game off between Auburn and Alabama. They didn't meet for over four decades because they were afraid of the hate and the malice on the gridiron. It took an act of Congress. Back December of 1947, the Alabama House of Representatives passed a resolution encouraging the schools to get over their differences and once again get on the football field. So woe to the mother of a child who might have one at each university. Her heart is pulled and her allegiance is pulled and, and she doesn't know what to do. While there might be a few moms in Alabama who feel the pull of dual allegiance, that should never be so for the children of God. We must love our allegiance with the Father and we must forsake the world. It's one or the other. You can't have both. There's another rivalry, Clemson and South Carolina, the state of South Carolina. My brother went to Clemson. My sister went to Carolina, the Gamecocks. She raised her children wearing the Gamecock colors. She took them to the Gamecock bowl game. She taught them that Clemson was bad and Clemson people were bad and they were indoctrinated. And when my niece Logan graduated from high school, Clemson made her a deal she couldn't refuse, and she joined the other team. Not only did she join the other team, she was elected as student body president of Clemson University. And not only did she join the other team, her brother, my nephew Dylan, followed, and he went to Clemson too. My family's still distraught over it, at least parts of it are. <laughs> And Dylan became the mascot, the guy in the tiger uniform. So here's the president, here's the tiger. And well, my sister's distraught and she was in the airport one day and the president of Clemson University came by and she was wearing Gamecock colors. And she said, my daughter's Logan, who's president of your university. And there she is in Gamecock colors. And he says, what are you doing in Gamecock colors? And she says, I made my choice. They made their choice. The grandkids are going back Gamecock. That's what she said. <laughs> You got to know who your team is. To love the world is to be attracted to something that one wishes to enjoy. To indulge in something that's not in the light. To want to participate in that which is rebellion against God. Verse 16, he says, everything or all that is in the world. He doesn't mean seas and mountains and crawling creatures, but he means the moral and spiritual impulses that determine how people live. Here's the second thing I want you to see. The pleasures of this passing place have a satanic source. The pleasures of this passing place have a satanic source. The evil of this world, it finds its origin from dark forces. John gives quite specific the desires of the flesh, he says, any desire, a strong desire for satisfaction is evil. The flesh is the part of the man that's prone to sin. Listen to Paul in Galatians. Sort of the same dichotomy here. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh has its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may do, not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and enmities and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and envying and drunkenness and carousing and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Be careful for the desires of the flesh. The second thing he says is the lust of the eyes. Desire of the eyes is that short-sighted desire for only that which you can see physically and that which you want right now. We have a, a tendency to be captivated by the facade of something without knowing the values behind the facade. This same writer, John, in his gospel in John chapter 9, talks about the man that was born blind and, and, and then he's given sight. And 12 times he uses the word eyes in that story because what he's trying to tell us is that when we accept Christ, when we call Jesus Lord, that our eyes are opened and we see the values behind things and not just the facade on the front. Jesus is in the business of opening our eyes to kingdom values and not the values of the world. Think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, it all starts with the eyes. She saw, her eyes were delighted, and she took and she ate. Or Achan in Joshua 7 who stole the spoils of Jericho and buried them under his tent. I saw the spoil was beautiful. I saw the gold. I saw the money, and I put it under my tent. I saw, I coveted, I took. It's the same story throughout Scripture. Or Psalm 119, 37. Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Next thing he says, not only desires of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, but notice the pride of life there back in 1 John 2. The word pride, it brings the image, the idea of arrogance or boastfulness or overconfidence, overconfident in one's resources or one's own wealth or one's own abilities. The pride of the word here in Greek is bios. It is where we get biology from. It is the word life. Those who are those who are celebrating the pride of life think their own accomplishments, their own will, their own way, their own wealth will allow them to function. The reality is money won't really buy you anything, will it? It's an attitude of pretentious elitism in those who are following the pride of life. We must always be careful when we choose leadership in the church that we don't use the same measures of success as the world standard. Possessing wealth doesn't make one a leader in the church. Being a great business person does not make one a leader in a church. In fact, when we take those forms of measurement, we're using the, the measures of the world. In reality, in the early church, it might be that the slave was a teacher of the master when they were in God's house. Number three, the folly of the world fades, but the will and the way of God is forever. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. 
It's a present tense. The world is passing away. You see, the world is already on, on the decline and the kingdom is already growing like the mustard seed. It's already begun. The end has already started in the arrival of Jesus, the king of the cosmos. Look at chapter 1 John 2, 8. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is, which is true in him and you because darkness is passing away and the true light, that is Christ, is already shining. 1 Corinthians 7.31, the form of this world is passing away. Now take a trip back in time. Imagine for a moment that you were clairvoyant and you had known that the Titanic was going to sink. Would you buy a ticket on a sinking cruise ship? Probably not. Or what after, what after a leak is sprung in the ship? A gentleman starts buying and selling and bartering and trading and, well, he gets a bunch of luxuries. He goes up there on the deck of the Titanic. He starts buying jewelry and fur. He says, man, this is going to be cheap. This ship is going to sink. I, I can get all this stuff at a bargain. Why would you wheel and deal when your destiny is the depth of the sea? Those jewels and fur coats will be awash on the bottom of the ocean. The whole world the evil kingdom is a titanic. And we find ourselves sometimes even as a people of God bartering and trading and wheeling and dealing and trying to make deals on the deck of the titanic when the reality is it all comes to nothing. Nothing in this world lasts forever. Nothing, nobody, no time, no how. It is passing away. When we chase all the gold and glory of this world, all we're doing is rearranging the deck chairs of the Titanic and missing our eternal reward. Do you know the biblical character Demas? I bet you don't. Oh, you know Paul and Luke. And you know James and John, but you know there's not a lot of kids in the nursery named Demas. We don't get a lot of little Demases. No one knows the name Demas. In Colossians 4, 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you greetings and also Demas. So there in Colossians, Demas is with Luke and Paul. Or in Philemon 24, Paul writes, I greet you as do Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas, and Luke, my Demas, is a fellow worker with Paul. Everything's good for Demas until you get to 2 Timothy 4, 10, when Paul writes, and this is his death document, for Demas... Having loved this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, Demas had been in good company. He had spent time with Luke, the writer of a large part of our New Testament. And what time he wasn't with Luke, he was with Paul or with Luke and with Paul. He was in the very best of company. But in the end, when, when Paul is saying, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering and the, the time of my departure is at hand when Paul is saying goodbye to this world and looking to the eternal kingdom, Demas abandons Paul. He abandons the kingdom for the pleasures of the world. Demas traded in the everlasting for the passing. He sacrificed the kingdom for this passing world. 
or buying tickets on the Titanic. Hopefully we have a set of kingdom values that allow us to make different decisions and different choices based upon who God is and what kingdom is going to last. And this passage is about a lot more than just promiscuity or sensuality or living opulently with the riches of this world. It's about more than that. It's saying that all human values... All ethics or all morality that are defined by a fallen people are fatally flawed at the first. They're built, their values, the world values are built on false premises. They can't get it right. They don't have the core from which to get it right. They do not have the gospel. They do not have, thus saith the Lord God Almighty. I want to say this boldly. The church is not to adopt the standards of the world. The world is the enemy. The world operates in a different economy. God's sovereign prerogative is to define the standard of human values and human morality. The human spirit at its heart is an atheist, wanting each person to be his own God or her own God. And the result the judges told us a long time ago is everyone will do what is right in his own eyes. In today's nomenclature, they'll say, you do you and I'll do me. No, we both will be doing, thus saith the Lord God Almighty. You don't get to choose what is right and wrong. The economy of God has already said it in his commandments and shown it in his sacrificial love. The first imperative of John is foundational to all other imperatives. The first command is foundational to all other values. Do not love the world. Do not adopt the world's attitudes. Do not adopt the world's values. We must. You must, I must, the church must. Allow God to have his rightful place as sovereign Lord and his word, the rightful place to tell us this is right and this is wrong. This is up and this is down. This is north and this is south. And often, the physical needs and the blessings happen to God's people anyway. But our everyday decisions must be made based upon God and God's eternity. If not, even our very best efforts in this world based on this world's values amount to little more than polishing the brass on the Titanic. Let us pray. Oh God, I, I fear we all got a little polished paste on our hands and little rags in our pockets. I know I do. Sometimes I confuse the values of this world with your values. God, I pray that your church will never compromise her ways based upon what the world says. It is not our job to accommodate lostness and evil. It is our job to proclaim the clear word of God, the light in the darkness. Maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to come and declare Jesus as Lord, literally switching teams, saying, I want to be a child of the light. I don't want to be a citizen of the passing world. I want to be a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God.
Maybe there are others who would want to be a part of a church like this who will boldly proclaim the word of God in season and out of season. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.